From the ACLU, this is At Liberty, but I'm not Emerson Sykes. My name is Kendall Seesmeyer, and I'm the producer of this podcast. I'm taking the reins for this episode as Emerson is off. A quick note to listeners, today's episode was recorded outside of our office due to our mandatory work-from-home policy during the unfolding coronavirus pandemic. We take seriously the safety of our staff and the guests on our podcast. Please excuse any change in audio quality. With the recent spread of COVID-19 in the United States, we now face a public health emergency unlike any we've seen in our work at the ACLU. Across the country, schools are closed, employees are adapting to new work-from-home policies, and some state and local officials have even implemented shelter-in-place orders. At the ACLU, we work with a variety of vulnerable populations. COVID-19 brings new concerns to our daily fight to protect civil rights and liberties. For this episode, I spoke with three of our colleagues who work on voting rights, immigration, and prison reform to learn about how COVID-19 is affecting their work. First, I spoke with Dale Ho, director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project, to learn about how COVID-19 is complicating the voting process and what he and his team are doing to make sure that we can all exercise our right to vote. Dale, what are you most concerned about when it comes to protecting the right to vote during the COVID-19 outbreak? I'm most concerned that the traditional way that most people have voted in the past in person on election day is going to be difficult or not viable for a lot of people. We've already seen pretty significant disruptions of the primary elections, relocating polling locations away from assisted living facilities where polling places frequently are cited, poll workers not being able to show up most Poll workers are over the age of 60 and are obviously at risk right now. Um, And then voters, for obvious reasons, not wanting to go to a location where there might be a crowd. So I'm very concerned that people are going to need a different way of voting other than going to a polling place on Election Day. And that states have not yet done enough to think about how they're going to provide for those alternate means of voting. I'm thinking primarily of voting by mail to make it accessible for everyone who's going to need to or want to use it, and um, that states aren't going to get the help that they need from the federal government in terms of the resources that are going to be necessary to process that increased volume, probably the highest volume of mail-in votes that we have ever seen in an election. So, When we think about the primaries that are happening right now, what can states be doing in the immediate to help protect their voters from exposure? States that don't offer no excuse absentee voting need to offer it now. It's a good policy in general that's generally associated with greater participation, but there is no excuse for requiring an excuse to vote absentee when we have a deadly pandemic going on. States need to either pass legislation that makes that available, or they need to issue guidance to voters, making clear to voters that the pandemic will constitute a valid reason for seeking to vote absentee under existing law. 17 states don't permit all voters to vote by mail. Those states 
particularly, uh, obviously, the ones that have primaries coming up, need to make that change now. And what kind of prep can we do ahead of the general election? I mean, obviously, primaries turn out a certain amount of voters, but the general turns out the whole country all at one time. What about that concerns you? Yeah. So in addition to the states that need to add no excuse absentee voting, I think every state needs to look very seriously at mailing every registered voter in their states a ballot with a return envelope that is self-sealing. We don't want people licking their envelopes right now. It's not, that's not usually the kind of issue that I have to worry about, but right now um, that's a concern. And with postage paid, we need to make it as easy as possible for people to vote by mail. The second thing we need to do is change laws that in 15 states prohibit absentee votes from being processed until election day. That could be a really, really significant problem in this election. As we see a high volume of mail-in votes, it could mean delays in tabulating results and forecasting winners, which could reduce public confidence in the accuracy and the integrity of the election. So we need to fix those laws right away. But all of us, including people who are engaged in the public discourse around elections, and that includes the media, need to help set public expectations now that if we have a higher volume of mail-in voting like we expect to see, we need to also understand that the kind of instant gratification that we have grown accustomed to on election night of forecasting winners immediately when polls close, that we might not get that this year. And that does not signify something wrong. Rather, that's just a natural consequence of having more ballots than ever cast by mail. With more people voting absentee, there is the risk that absentee votes could get tossed out, won't get counted. How do we protect absentee voting if we are going to see a surge in that methodology? Historically, absentee ballots have been rejected at a higher rate than votes cast in person. And the reason people speculate this might be the case is because when you vote absentee, you don't have the benefit of asking a poll worker to answer any questions that you might have, getting assistance, the kind of assistance that you would get if you voted in person at a polling location. So we need to make sure that we protect absentee voters' rights in at least two respects. First, we have to make sure that absentee voters have the right to assistance with their ballots. We're challenging a law in Montana, for example, right now that prohibits people from assisting folks who are voting by mail um, get their ballots to elections officials. Second, voters need to be notified of any problems with their ballots, technical defects, things like that. We've had to sue a number of states that when an absentee voter's ballot comes in, but it has a minor technical defect, have not provided those voters with notice of that problem and an opportunity to fix it. They've simply discarded the vote, and that's unacceptable. We've had to sue New Hampshire, California, and Georgia to get those states to change their policies. We just want to make sure that if anyone votes by mail, if there's a problem with their ballot, that they get a chance to fix that before their votes are tossed. And we're actively looking at a number of other states that don't provide such an opportunity to try to get that fixed before November. The idea also isn't that we would want to close all polling places, right? Because also that could limit access to people who might not necessarily be able to mail in their ballot. 
Do you have any thoughts around protecting people who have to visit a polling place? The concern you've identified is absolutely right, that in the push to make mail-in voting more accessible, we have to make sure that we don't eliminate the option to vote in person. There are a lot of voters who are going to continue to need that. Voters with certain kinds of disabilities, voters with limited English proficiency. There are a lot of voters who don't have easy access to the postal service, actually. Um, Younger people who are lower income voters who move more frequently and for whom the government doesn't have accurate information or current address information. Native American voters who live on reservations have no postal service at all in many cases. Um, And then a lot of states allow registration up to and including on election day. And you don't want those voters to who would take advantage of that to be disenfranchised just because they didn't register before the state sent ballots out. So there are a lot of reasons why people may still need to vote in person on election day. We can't eliminate those opportunities. What we need to do is make sure that those opportunities are safe and accessible. This is another place where the federal government can step in with resources to help states recruit a younger pool of poll workers, right? Folks who aren't in the at-risk age group and to provide health and safety equipment um, to make sure that any polling locations in November adequately protect the health of poll workers and voters. And Dale, this might seem like a bit of a silly question, but I think for younger people who might be listening to this, they might think, Dale, why don't we just go all online? What would you say to that question? The broad consensus of cybersecurity experts is we're just not ready for that, that an attempt to move voting online would be at very, very high risk of being vulnerable to hacking and manipulation. People ask, well, don't we do banking that way or things like that? And yes, we do. There were were many years of preparation for that and a big on-ramp to get us there. And even today, banks experience a decent amount of loss due to hacking, which they just kind of write off as a cost of doing business. We don't have the time in the seven and a half months before the election to get there, nor do we have the ability to sort of write off a certain amount of manipulation and interference as just kind of the cost of our democracy. Look, we've had elections on time in this country throughout our history, even in times of war, even in a civil war that engulfed the entire country. In fact, absentee voting was largely an invention of necessity during the civil war. We've done this before. We have a roadmap. We can do it again. We just need the will to do it and the resources to make it happen. As far as looking at litigation options or what your team is mostly focused on right now in this immediate time of responding to the the outbreak, where are you headed? What is your team working on? What's taking up your time these days? It would take, I think, the entire podcast to talk about the range of things that are taking up our time. The disruption to um, the 2020 election has already been so significant and the potential for further disruptions is severe. So we've been working around the clock on a very wide range of issues, but I'll just mention three right now. The first is six states have already delayed their presidential primaries, and we are not in a position to say that that's a bad or a good idea. That's up to, I think, the public health experts. 
But here's the thing. If you move the election, you also have to move the voter registration deadline that accompanies with it. Georgia has committed to doing that for its postponed election, um, but we are looking at the other five states which have not done that yet, and uh, they need to. Second thing we're doing in terms of litigation is um, the notice and cure issue. We're actively looking at states that don't notify absentee voters of problems with their ballots and give them a chance to fix them. And if they don't provide such an opportunity, we may have to litigate in those places. And then the third thing, and this is kind of a broader thing, but it's uh, what's called for it. The federal courts have never held that people have a right to vote by mail, but we are in an unprecedented situation. And if states are going to require voters to appear in person on election day to vote in a context where the CDC is recommending that you don't go to a gathering of 10 or more people or where the state's own governor is shutting down all but essential services, we think that that's tantamount to asking voters to choose between their health and their right to vote. And no one should have to make such a choice. So if conditions continue to be what they are or even deteriorate, and if states continue to insist on voting in person, then that is an issue we may be forced to litigate. Thank you so much for your time, Dale. We really appreciate you taking a moment to speak with us. It's my pleasure. Next, listen to my conversation with Michael Tan, Deputy Director of the ACLU's Immigrants' Rights Project, to learn about how his team is working to protect undocumented people's access to health care and how COVID-19 sanctions are threatening asylum. Michael, what are you and the rest of your team at the Immigrants' Rights Project most concerned about when it comes to COVID-19? I guess I would start just by recognizing that you know all of us are having a really difficult time right now with COVID-19. All of us are very concerned about ensuring that we and our families have access to the care and treatment we need in the midst of that of the pandemic. And that's true regardless if you're a citizen or an immigrant, whether you have legal status or not. Everyone needs to be able to access the critical testing and healthcare that we need to take care of ourselves. And one of our main concerns is that the actions of this administration, and specifically U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, undermine that goal. And I think this is really important for listeners to know. They've reiterated that they will not be conducting enforcement activities at hospitals, doctor's offices, medical centers. Very important statement. And so immigrants should feel free to go to those spaces and not fear getting picked up by ICE. And at the same time, ICE has not said that they're suspending all their activities. They claim that they're going to focus on going after quote unquote public safety threats. That is a very vague standard. And we're very concerned that many ICE officers are going to continue doing business as usual, picking up people in communities terrifying immigrants and their families, and thereby prevent them from accessing the care they need. And what about the concern that we all have for people who are kept in close quarters? How does that affect things like immigrant detention? That's a great question. And I think it's closely related to what I was talking about a few moments ago. Right now is a really terrible time for ICE to be picking them up 
and putting them in an immigration detention center or an immigration jail. Most of the people in immigration detention are being held there while they're going through a court proceeding to determine if they're allowed to stay in the United States or not. And the consensus among medical experts is that jails, prisons, detention centers are absolute disasters during this pandemic. I mean, they are tinderboxes. The threat of an outbreak is very, very high. And the resulting consequences for the people inside and also a very overtaxed public health infrastructure are very severe. So we have also called on ICE and recently filed litigation to release people from immigration detention, much like we're seeing many jail and prison systems release people for the sake of public health. I think the people to start with are uh, people who are at risk. So these are the folks who the CDC has said, if they get COVID-19, they are at high risk of serious illness or death. And you know, recently we at the ACLU filed litigation in the federal district court in Seattle demanding the release of nine individuals who have those kinds of conditions that expose them to potential death if they get sick. And we're, we're waiting to see what comes of that. But in the meantime, nothing stops ICE from doing that on its own. And in fact, they have an interest. I mean, the government has an interest in avoiding an outbreak. Their own people are working in these detention centers, the guards, the medical workers, the clerical staff. It doesn't make any sense to expose them or anyone, the people detained there, the people who work there, to COVID-19. And so we think releases are essential, starting with people who are most at risk. The administration banned non-essential cross-border travel and also announced that they will be immediately sending people who don't have authorization to come into the United States back to where they were coming from. How does this affect the process of asylum? Yeah. That poses very significant civil liberty concerns. Under U.S. law and under international law, we have an obligation to protect people from persecution or torture. So if you're an asylum seeker and you face persecution or torture in your home country, our laws offer you protection. And as far as we can tell right now, the administration has put no procedures in place to ensure that we're living by those commitments, that we're not sending asylum seekers back to situations where they would be persecuted, tortured, or even killed. The UN High Commissioner on Refugees has recognized that, you know, in the midst of a situation like COVID-19, states can and should implement precautions at the border like screening and quarantine in necessary cases where science calls for those measures to be put into place. But what COVID-19 doesn't justify is completely waiving our longstanding commitments dating since really after World War II to offer refugees protection. And so that's a situation that we are monitoring very closely and we'll be updating all of you about very soon. We'll be interested to see, I guess, how it develops and how your team responds. We've seen the president call the COVID-19 virus the Chinese virus. And following that, we've seen this wave of anti-Asian xenophobia and hate crimes. 
what concerns you most about this rhetoric from your perspective at the Immigrant Rights Project? I think one of the very troubling aspects of the COVID-19 crisis is the resurgence of anti-Asian and anti-Chinese racism that you refer to. And it's been especially troubling that our president has been fomenting that racism by referring to the coronavirus as the Chinese virus. And that we've seen, you know, a corresponding uptick in hate violence against Asian Americans in different parts of the country. I mean, I can speak personally, I am Chinese American. I have a lot of family and friends who are Asian American. And I've had several conversations with people I care about a lot, where they say, on top of all of this, on top of sheltering in place, on top of worrying if I'm going to be safe, my kids are going to be safe, my parents, my grandparents are going to be safe. You know, I don't need to be afraid for my physical safety when I walk out the door to get my groceries, where I don't want to have to worry that I'm going to be assaulted or the target of hate violence because of the kinds of statements the president has been making and other politicians have been making and other figures in the media have been making. I think that kind of racist signaling is repugnant. It's unacceptable. I think, you know, hearing the president say, it's not racist, I'm being accurate, the virus started in China, which is clearly not what this whole debate is about. That kind of classic form of gaslighting that racists so often deploy. It's very, very troubling. COVID-19 does not discriminate (laughs) based on your race, where you come from, your immigration status. And we're only going to get through this if we work together. I think we have to take it as an opportunity to stay true to our values, to what we believe in, and take care of each other. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. Stay safe. And finally, I spoke with Maria Morris, senior staff attorney for the ACLU's National Prison Project, about the ways in which prisons need to be responding to the COVID-19 outbreak and the emergency litigation that may be necessary if they fail to do so. So in the days since COVID-19 hit the U.S., What have you and your team been sorting through? What most concerns you when it comes to the prison population? So one of the things that we've seen is that when there is an emergency, such as a tornado or a hurricane, the prison population often gets forgotten about. We were very concerned that that could happen in the context of this outbreak and that because of certain characteristics of the population of prisons, they would be extremely vulnerable. People who are in the prisons are often in pretty ill health. There's a lot of chronic disease within prisons and a lot of immune compromised people in prisons. So our first action was to try to raise awareness of how vulnerable they are and get the prison systems throughout the country thinking about what they need to be doing to be preparing for this illness, to get them talking about how they're going to staff the prisons if there are correctional staff out sick, if there are medical staff out sick, how they're going to staff the prisons when prisoners 
are unable to do the kinds of work that they usually do in the prisons, how they are going to distribute adequate hygiene products, including just that simple basic thing of soap. So a lot of these kinds of questions, getting them to start thinking about it proactively, and also getting them to think about, are there ways to limit or reduce the density of the population in prisons, jails, and detention centers? Can you keep people from going into jails? Can you let them out earlier? Can you keep people from going out into immigration detention, or can you let them out? Are there people in prisons that you can let out on a compassionate release or medical parole, something like that? When you talk about compassionate release, what does that mean? So different states and systems have different names for it. But basically, most states, also the immigration detention system and a lot of county jails, have some sort of process where if a person is very ill, very old, that they can be let out. And given that that is exactly the population that is the most vulnerable, it would be sensible for them to actually use those laws. The very first thing that we think that all the prison systems need to be doing is contacting the local public health authorities where they are to get the latest guidance on what should be happening. But they should be thinking about things like limiting transfers between facilities and between housing units within facilities, unless there's some reason for doing so. They should also be, and based on guidance from public health officials, thinking about how to group people according to their level of risk and whether or not they've had any kind of exposure. So all of those things are helpful or hopefully will be helpful to limit the spread if it gets into a facility. One of the really big important things is soap and hand washing and education of people that that's what they need to be doing, the 20 second hand washing all the time. We were in a facility in Arizona last week for reasons unrelated to COVID-19. And there was no enhanced provision of soap. People can purchase soap in the commissary, but not everyone has money to purchase soap. They allow people who are indigent to get soap but they still mark it down on their books so that if any money ever comes into their account, it'll be taken, which is a disincentive for getting more soap. There are not adequate hygiene supplies for washing your body, washing your cell. So even though this is, it seems like such a very basic thing and it's critical for infection control, but even those very basic supplies are not adequately available. Well, and with people in such close quarters, you know, we've seen in recent weeks, COVID-19 spread in nursing homes. And I think with a similar setup in prisons where you have large groups of people in close quarters, the fear is very much a real fear. And I guess I'm wondering 
what about people who are being held pre-trial? What do we do for them? Should they be released? So for the most part, we think they should not be in jail. In Washington, D.C., they did away with cash bail 20 years ago. Most people show up for court. The vast, vast, vast majority of people show up for court. Other places before this outbreak happened were beginning to move in the direction of doing away with cash bail. But there are so many people throughout the country who are sitting in jails right now because they can't afford to bail themselves out. We should be letting them out with whatever conditions are warranted for ensuring that they return. I think we should be looking at when people are arrested, do they need to be booked into the jail in the first place? Or can they be issued a court date and told to come back when it's time to go to court? So I think there are important things that could be done, particularly in the jails, to limit the number of people who are in those very dangerous settings during this period of this outbreak. And as far as what the National Prison Project at the ACLU is doing to help move some of these efforts along, can you tell us a little bit about the ways in which your team is engaging these issues right now? We've put together a letter for ACLU affiliates to help them reach out to the prison systems or jails in their area to begin interacting and pushing them to take steps to address this issue. We are also engaging in some litigation. We brought an emergency motion in our case in Arizona based on what we saw there last week, asking the court to order them to come up with a plan and to implement it. Just for clarification, in Arizona, what specifically are you referring to? Okay, so the case there is Parsons v. Shin. Mm-hmm. And it's a statewide case against the prison system there regarding medical care, mental health care, and the conditions in solitary confinement. We were there last week in one of the facilities to monitor the settlement. And what we saw indicated that there was very little preparation being made regarding COVID-19. Within the context of that suit, we submitted an emergency motion asking the courts to order them to make a plan and carry it out. And as far as for people who are listening to this, and I think in recent news, we've seen certain correctional officers be tested positive for COVID-19. There are news reports, it seems like almost every day, showing the further spread of the virus and in prisons especially. For people who are concerned, What could they do to help at least your team at the ACLU or their local prisons? I think probably the most helpful thing on a local level is to contact their government representatives and say that they care about this issue, that it matters to them that the people who we as a society are locking up should not be sitting ducks for this illness, that we need to be providing appropriate personal protective equipment in the prisons for the people who are working there. 
it's important for people to let their representatives know that this matters. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time. Sure, no problem. Thanks so much to Dale Ho, Michael Tan, and Maria Morris for joining us on today's episode. And thanks to you all for listening. If you enjoyed these conversations, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. If you'd like to support our COVID-19 response work, you can donate at aclu.org donate. Until next week, stay safe, everyone.